0: All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. How's it going? What are we in month seven of this shit? How are you? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How's the exercise going? How's the walk? How's your dog? How's your kid? How's your leg? How's your hand? How's your fucking head? Are you using whatever options you have at your disposal to maintain your sanity without hurting yourself or others? Are you trying to mind your mind so they don't mine your mind? Do you know what a mark is? Do you know what a mark is? Not me. A mark. The intended victim of a swindler, hustler, or the Like a mark an object of derision scorn manipulation or the like example he was an easy mark for this trumpian bullshit marks a nation of marks why am i bringing that up why am i bringing that up i tell you man president alluded to leaving the country if he loses Good riddance. If he can't maintain power and continue to degrade the nature of the rule of law as we drift further into authoritarianism, don't email me, you know, the three fucking Trump supporters who listen to me. Don't email me with your fucking delusional bullshit about what's really happening. Don't do it. It's not my fault that you're a mark, that you didn't mind your mind, or that you're so myopic that your ability to contextualize or see through the veil of garbage is muted or destroyed. Wouldn't it be beautiful if he loses and then moves the entire operation and family to Russia, where he can be protected? Wouldn't it be the best thing in the world if this motherfucker lived in exile in Moscow? He's got a lot of debt, He's got a lot of charges hanging over his head. I would, th- I, I would just, I love that story. That's the best possible ending as the world ends. Patty Smith is on the show today. Patty fucking Smith is on the show today. Patty Smith. Are you fucking kidding me? When was the last time you listened to her first three albums in a row? Uh, She's got her latest book out, Year of the Monkey. It's now available in paperback. You might have read some of her other stuff, Just Kids and Devotion and a few other books. But she's here, and I've been wanting to talk to her for a while. And uh, she's here. I am her first zoom interview I was her first zoom call Patty Smith was a zoom virgin before me and i'm I'm thrilled to have had that honor and you'll hear me talking to patty I just love her what there's she's the real fucking deal she is the one and only patty Smith she's the raw goods man all there all the time right up front fucking love her True beatnik legacy. That's what I was trying to get at. There's no context anymore, really. History is dissolving. Everything is all the time. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. That's not true. That's an old riff on a Hassan Asaba bit that Burroughs used to do. And then Jim Carroll did it in a song. I can't think like that. But the context of history is diminished when everything happens all the time and no one is educated properly. No one is really schooled in critical thinking or or uh, civics or even American history in a proper way. Global history, myself included. It's just all there all the time. Nobody knows who did what or what anyone's importance was in the context of history. The big monsters and the do gooders. Nobody knows really how they fit in. The generation of young people who might say yeah you know oh Hitler the guy with the mustache right that's the context but history is being diminished and that's why on some level I was happy to talk to Patty because she comes directly from the New York that was still being occupied by a beatnik idea that was still being occupied by artists sort of like really pushing the envelope. That first wave of performance artists, the first wave of punk, you know, in the sort of like the beaten up city of the early seventies stuff was forming. Things were happening. There was no internet. Everything was raw and dirty. Yeah, that history, but she has a direct legacy. She knew Burroughs. She knew Ginsburg. They both took her under her, their wing she was friends with uh, Maplethorpe. She dated Sam Shepard, Tom Verlaine, but she was there at the, in the cauldron of that stuff in the seventies, when those old timers were kind of fading out a bit, but still had some wisdom to share. Because I wanted to be part of the Beatnik legacy. I respected that history. I was a hero worshiper, even though I didn't quite understand it. And I don't think any of those people exist anymore the people that sort of worship these times, is it nostalgia? Is it wanting to live in the past? Or is it honoring the arc of history and and where you land in it and where you come from? When I was in college, I was like all up in it, reading the books about the Beatniks, reading the Beatnik books, reading the Beatnik heroes. Arthur Rimbaud. Baudelaire, Blake, Ginsburg was a Blake guy, a Rimbaud guy. They were all Rimbaud guys. Patti Smith's a Rimbaud woman, a Blake woman. That poetic legacy, the poetic journey of that particular type of poetry, shatter your senses, man. Break it all down. Like I got some quotes here from these fe- from these people. From Rimbaud, the poet, therefore, is truly the thief of fire. He is responsible for humanity, for animals even. He will have to make sure his visions can be smelled, fondled, listened to. If what he brings back from beyond has form, he gives it form. If it has none, he gives it none. A language must be found of the soul, for the soul, and will include everything, perfumes, sounds, colors, thought grappling with thought. Arthur Rimbaud, hero of Patti Smith, hero of the Beats, hero of Ginsburg. I always feel like I don't get it. I always thought there was more there that I I didn't understand it. How do I crack this fucking code? And then you kind of lighten up with it. Just take it in. Take what you can get. The Beats. The Mark. Burroughs was a great comedian and a great philosopher, And I think he said something very relevant. My favorite Burroughs quotes apply directly to what we're living through. Like this one from Naked Lunch, I think. The junk merchant doesn't sell his product to the consumer. He sells the consumer to his product. He does not improve and simplify his merchandise. He degrades and simplifies the client. God bless America. Here's a direct message to... The piece of shit president of the United States we have currently. Quote, hustlers of the world. There is one mark you cannot beat. The mark inside. End quote. The mark. The intended victim of a swindler, hustler, or the like. That's from the dictionary. My point being, there was a progression there was a progression from the beatnik idea through the poetry of Patti Smith, through the playwriting of Sam Shepard, on into punk rock. And Burroughs was dug in in New York for a while. But, you know, Patti broke out. There's nobody like Patti Smith, but she was shaped and molded in the cauldron of fucking poetic art, the vision of Rimbaud. I remember when I walked, I came home from college one year. I went into the Living Batch bookstore where my mentor, Gus Blaisdell, presided. He was the proprietor. And there was a poster on the wall for some sort of big shindig up in Naropa. This must have been in the 80s, the early 80s, at that beatnik school. Yeah, I think it was the Naropa Institute. I remember seeing this poster, and they were all going to be there, all the living beats. At that time, you know, Burroughs, Ginsburg, Gary Snyder, maybe Creeley, I don't know who was there. Ann Waldman, they were all gonna be there. And I was such a fucking fanboy, man. I was said I said to Gus, I said, I gotta get up there and see that. He goes, What do you wanna hang around with those geriatrics for? Do your own thing, man. And I'm like, yeah, but they were great. I knew those guys. And then he made a joke. I want to. I didn't want to believe it was a joke. Maybe it wasn't a joke. But he said, yeah, I met Kerouac once at a party in San Francisco. He was sitting on the floor in the corner, drunk, with vomit on his shirt, talking to Neil Cassidy, saying, live like a tree, Neil. Live like a tree. <laughs> but that was Gus, man. He was a funny motherfucker. Changed my head, changed my mind, changed my heart. But I've been to the places. I've been to the graves. I've worshipped at the altars. And I come out, here I am. This is it. So now I got Patty Smith here. Just so... Uh, so fucking excited about it. Seriously. I was your first Zoom. I hope it went well. I hope she enjoyed it. Right? Huh? Her third and latest memoir is called Year of the Monkey. It's now available in paperback wherever you get books. And this is me and Patti Smith doing her first Zoom. Dig it. What's your cat's name?
1: Cairo. Oh uh, look at that. She's 19 years old and she's uh she's a bit infirmed and she doesn't like to be separated from me so I'm going to take oh. a little here if it doesn't Oh no.
0: Matter. No, it's great. I just had to uh I had a, a I just had to put down a 16 year old. I'm sorry. It's terrible. Sorry. Jeez. And his sister went about 6 months ago and then I got I have this other one who's about 4. So I got one left.
1: Well she's the last of the three we had, so but she uh she's a little Abyssinian runt. She was born really small, kicked out of the litter box and or kicked out of the mama's box, and they didn't think she'd last very long and she's nineteen, so
0: the runts are tough.
1: That's right. <laughs> I wasn't a runt, but I was pretty scruffy. I was a scrawny thing.
0: You seem pretty tough pretty early on.
1: Yeah. I mean I was um People would say I was sickly because I was sick all the time. But in the '50s, um, you had everything: measles, chickenpox, scarlet fever, monk, mumps, yeah, tuberculosis. As, as a toddler, I mean, back then you got everything and uh, two kinds of measles. But it didn't necessarily mean that you were um, a sickly child. It just meant that you were negotiating all of the things that came out out, out at you. So. I'm pretty good at negotiating those type of things. So, you know, I'm hoping that that will give me um, extra strength in uh, our present situation.
0: What a situation it is, huh?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, just, uh, you know, having been through so many different kinds of illnesses, I know, and this one seems extremely troublesome, uh, unpredictable, potentially dangerous. So I've been respecting it. I've yeah. had my, my 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 talk with it and said, all right, I respect you. I'm 73. I have a little bronchial condition. I'll be prudent. And uh, even though I'm restless and agitated, I'll be prudent and I do what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's that's all I can do.
0: That's good. Well, I like this. You said in, uh, in one of these uh, uh, epilogues, you said uh, uh, a psychic nausea that we were obliged to work off. In a work off in every way available a psychic nausea that we have that's every, that's every day
1: well the, the psychic nausea that i was speaking of then because i wrote that very early um was uh our, our our situation in terms of our government right i was really talking about our political situation and what we have to deal with daily but I, you know, of course, that melded with, uh, as you said, you know, we're now we're dealing with a pandemic that um, makes us uh, um, deal with things not only mentally, but physically.
0: Yeah. No, it's all combined.
1: I, But I do try to keep busy. I, yeah. I, I
0: try to keep busy as, as possible. I, I, I've been saying use whatever option you have at your disposal to maintain your sanity without hurting yourself or others.
1: Yes, that's I, I like that. That's good. And also do things that benefit you. I mean, it benefits me being alone in my house. I'm quite messy, so it benefits me to become more disciplined, to be neater, to clean up for after myself, to um, to shed things. It has benefited me to be, um, you know, more domestically aware, even though I didn't really want to, and I don't like staying put but I feel better. I feel like my surroundings are healthier. They're, um, you know, they, they give me more space to think. Yeah. So something like that, you know, just, we all have to do whatever we can to survive emotionally, physically, and, and, uh, you know,
0: psychologically.
1: Yeah, psychologically.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I think it's been interesting for me because spending this type of time with yourself, it's, it's not, it's, I guess it's not really challenging, but it is revealing. You know, I mean, in the book and in some of your other work, I mean, as a poet or as an artist, you know, you're you're sort of your job, part of your job is to to reflect and spend time, you know, meditating on life and whoever you are in in relation to the world and your expression. But like, but now you really find out what you're made of in terms of emotional survival, psychological survival, you know, what's important to you. And it's amazing how that list of things that you think are important to you gets smaller when you spend this type of frightened time alone, (laughs) you know, I, I,
1: I, that, yeah. Well put. I mean, really, I mean, I, I am used to being on my own. I'm used to traveling and being on my own all over Europe or while I'm working or away from my band. I like my solitude. I'm not that social. i like to write on my own, but that's in motion. Yeah. Being, uh, stationary alone is a lot different. Um, and, and I have found that challenging. So as you said, I've had to really go into myself and get to know what I'm like in this particular, uh, <laughs> scenario. Yeah. It has been, it has been challenging, but I've learned a lot. I feel healthier. I'm attending to myself. I'm doing my own cooking. Um, um, and and trying to develop new disciplines but i find that i pace a lot talk to myself more yeah. than usual
0: well i mean it seems like when i look at your life i mean like there's this idea you know that there's some precedent for 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 the type of chaos or for how bad this country can get in the, but it it seems to me that you grew up in the 50s but you got to new york what in the late 60s right yes so it 60, must have been insane right
1: Well, I mean, for me, uh, it was exciting because I, I lived in a very rural, um, area of South Jersey and, um, just to see people on the streets was exciting, you know, to see all these stores, to see so many bookstores, so many possibilities for work. Um, that was one of the exciting things. There was no, uh, work for a 20 year old in South Jersey or in Philadelphia because there was a huge, um, Shutdown of the uh, New York shipyard in Camden. Yeah. 30,000 people lost their jobs, and there were no real jobs for young people. So, New York was for me, um, you know, it was like a gold mine. <laughs> it was a down and out city like myself at the time, ni- 1967. The city was nearly bankrupt. It was very cheap to live in New York City then. There were hundreds, it seemed, of bookstores, places to get a job. Um, people on the streets were, you know, didn't bother it. There was things to see everywhere, museums. It it was amazing for, to me.
0: So it didn't feel like uh, it, like it, I watched, um, well, I saw some documentary footage of you, not, you know, with, with Robert, but also in, you know, I, I don't know what the interview was. I think it was in an Adam Curtis documentary, you know, about New York, but I always get the feeling that, you know, which is maybe wrong—that it, it felt chaotic and frightening—but but that wasn't the sense you got.
1: Oh no, I was never frightened in New York. Yeah, I was excited. I mean, because I mean, New York had its dangerous areas. There were areas back then that you just didn't go into. You didn't go down all the way down Avenue C in the East Village. Or, right. <laughs> you know, there were certain areas that you stayed out of. But I I found all of the um, the action exciting. Yeah. People on the streets. I mean, I, you know, in in the in the parks, there were all these people protesting and singing and playing chess. And uh, I you didn't see that where I came from. It was exciting. I mean, I never was harmed. In fact, it was a lot scarier walking down a dirt road at night and passing the pig farms in South Jersey in 1967 than walking through the East Village. That's for sure.
0: Well, I always felt that too. I, 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 always, felt, I always felt the safest in New York because at any point and any time you could walk outside and there'd be people. And, yes. Right? And there'd be people that if something went down, someone was going to step in and go, "Oh, whoa, 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 no, you can't do that. You know, someone was going to help out.
1: Yeah, I, I really, I felt, uh, I've never been harmed in New York City. Never, never been harmed by another person. And um, you know, I, I flourished here. I mean I yeah I, New York has much changed, and it's not the New York that I knew when I was young, but um, I feel very grateful to it.
0: Well, it seems like you're, I, I was thinking about like, you know, how to you know, frame a conversation or to think about your work or, 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 you know, how, how you kind of became who you are is that you're kind of like, there's a, your generation, this sort of, you know, beatnik legacies and the people that sort of came like the, the type of, of, of environment that created the art that, that your generation came from, that you came from, it, it was really the last one like that. I mean, it, it just, there was such a, a creative kind of um, a newness to things. There was like risks to be taken. And there was a, a sort of rock and roll slash beatnik ethic to it all. And, and a sort of desire to push buttons even further that, and it was also earnest and it seemed like a, a, a small community and you still had some of the old guys around.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, we were all... Um... That's so nicely said. I feel like I should just be listening to you. You're, you're, you're much more articulate than I've been lately, but, um, well, I think also we were all bred on rock and roll. Right. We were all, it was a, we were post-war kids. Um, we, we wanted new things. We, we didn't want the same, um, you know, we didn't want the things our parents desired, which was safety, security, or their little house and, you know, nothing wrong with the things that they wanted. Uh, We wanted something different. I wanted to be free of all of that. I didn't want to have things set up for me. I didn't want to be a secretary or a hairdresser or a homemaker. I wanted to see what else was out there. And the nice thing about uh, New York at that time, there were kids from all over, all over America who came like-minded. We were all listening to the same music. We all, you know, our causes were the same, you know, whether it was, you know, human rights, gay rights, civil rights, the uh, the war in Vietnam. We, we had our causes and our and our loves were very were in tandem. So, you know, you felt kinship wherever you went. And even the people that were more well known when I lived at the Chelsea, you know, Any given moment, Janis Joplin or the Allman Brothers or Jimi Hendrix or and all these people would walk in. And the only thing that separated us all was they had bigger rooms (laughs) or they had more money to spend at the bar. We all dressed the same. You know, we had similar cadence in our speech. Um, We all would get to know each other. There wasn't that it was a wasn't the cult of celebrity the way that it is now. It was more like, ah. That's such and such. And he's done this. Yeah. You know, he's created these songs that we're singing or that has really inspired us. It wasn't uh, people weren't taking people's pictures and asking for autographs. We all sort of lived
0: together. There's a community of creative people pushing the envelope. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And 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 I I don't know like because I'm I I'm fifty I just turned fifty seven so like you know a lot of this stuff for me coming into it and and being in college and you know kind of being obsessed with the beats and then getting obsessed with the next generation of artists that that you were part of and you know by the time I you know spent any time at the Chelsea you know it was not yeah you know, it was just a mythological place almost you know
1: <laughs> well it was that's funny because it was almost. When I when I went there in 69 with Robert, people were saying that about it then.
0: Oh, because, it was over?
1: <laughs> well, because uh, you didn't have people like Bob Dylan and Edie Cedric and Dylan Thomas and the the people before us had left or died. But the people that were still there were pretty good. Yeah. I, it was, um, we were more of the early rock. We were the rock and roll generation. Who was there? When we I mean, well, Shirley Clark lived there. Harry Smith was there. You'd see Arthur C. Clark. Um, Salvador Dali came in and out. Uh, Janis Joplin lived there for a while. And Leonard Cohen and all kinds of musicians stayed yeah. there. You you'd go into the, the bar next door and you'd see whoever was playing would, would be at the El Quixote. But they were just there. And I lived there. So they were in my house. <laughs> And uh, William Burroughs and I remember sitting at the bar um, at the El Coyote bar because we're working on a project with William Burroughs and it was William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and Carl Solomon and Dennis Hopper. And then Sam Shepard came in and it was just another night. You know, Terry Southern, he was writing a script for William. Uh We were going to do a version of uh, of uh, Junkie. Oh, really? And i was going to play Mary. But the it all fell apart. But for a while, just hanging out with them was pretty great.
0: I, I can't imagine. I, I just uh, it, it, like when I read this book, you know, the the new or the one that's coming out in paperback now, You're the Monkey. I mean, it seems like you were sort of straddling some of the stuff that Burroughs did, you know, moving between reality, not reality, dream, not dream. You having guides, you know, and and. Because like when when all this shit started to go down, for some reason, I went back to Burroughs to try to decode some stuff because I, in my life, I always feel like it's all in there somewhere that, you know, all the answers are within Burroughs somewhere. You just have to figure out how to find them and sort it out from some of the other science fiction and weirdness.
1: He believed it was all out there, it was all out there. And he believed also if you were lucky enough to have suffered scarlet fever, which both him and I had you're you had an open channel for all of of these things to come from this great pool so he what you were getting from william he was a good portal because william got all of those things from everywhere else he believed in that so he was the right guide for you
0: (laughs) so so the scarlet fever created the, the 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 ability
1: well he believed that it didn't create the the ability but that it opened the portal wider in the wild boys gianni and the wild boys um, had scarlet fever we had a club me and william called the scarlet fever club and uh, <laughs> but he he really believed that if you had suffered a really deep fever at a very young age it opened your portal forever
0: that's interesting yeah i went i for some reason i started to plow into the the Western lands, you know, which it seemed to me that I and I think that maybe you're dealing with a bit of it, too, that like he had to somehow reckon with mortality uh, in in a very sort of a a practical way for himself. And it seemed like, you know, his interpretation of the Book of the Dead was how he was going to go about it. Is that true?
1: Oh, (laughs) i suppose i don't i've never analyzed i i've never thought about it oh i mean to me I mean, that's the kind of thing you'd have to talk. I just read his stuff,
0: you know? Yeah, me too. But, like, I wanted answers somehow. And, and, like, I had to keep going back because structurally he's a little tricky for me. But, like, you know, when I started to see that he was dealing with all these different levels that that once the guy person dies, goes through, and he created characters with names for each of those levels that were very burrowsy characters, I was sort mm-hmm. of able to figure out, oh, this is the journey, man. You know, so uh, it, it was a they little...
1: You think deeper than I do. I mean, to me, William, sometimes reading William or reading certain writers is like listening to Coltrane or something do, or a saxophone solo. Right. I don't, I never analyze it. I just I'm just there and I just go with them and I go all the way as far as they're going to take me. And by and then I come back and don't even remember where we've been because I'm so immersed in the going. <laughs>
0: I think that's right. I think that's the best way to do it. I always assume like I'm missing something. They're like, no, no,
1: no, they're, <laughs> no, no, I, he's got so many blanks there. Yeah. He wants you to fill in. I mean, you have to be the third mind with, with William. Right. Because I, I remember one of William's great disappointment in himself was that he couldn't write a straight lace detective story or a straight lace novel he, and we talked about this all of these books if you, re, if, you if you think about it they start very conventionally <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Think you're you're going on you're you're going with this old guy sitting there with his you know shotgun on a barrel or something you're going to go straight through some plot with him and then he starts cutting things up and going into several layers of worlds and he told me he he just couldn't help it that's that's the way his mind works and that's his process. He would have loved to have written even a two-bit detective novel, that's for sure.
0: I've read his essays and it's interesting when he writes with that type of clarity or you read the interviews. But like yeah, and I get it. There's a magic to it. He, you guys, I mean, you're a magician as well. There is a magic to this idea of of transcending space and time, you know, through cut-ups and through, you know, I I mean, I get it and I like it. So you were able to spend time with Burroughs early on, you know, before you started singing or as a poet? Oh
1: yeah. I met him in 1970. I think I met him. uh, I had a big crush on him. So I was always, uh, um, you know how to pick (laughs) him. He would come into the Chelsea hotel and he was so handsome and he was always so well-dressed and uh, I just had the biggest crush on him and I would try to you know, I would talk to him, and I think he was amused by me. Yeah, and um, but also he got to trust me. He, um, I don't know, we became friends. But also, sometimes in the course of a night, William would get extremely disheveled because he'd come into the Chelsea, um, and you had to go- come through the lobby and then go through this door into the bar. Yeah, he would start out with his, you know, perfect tie and and suit and overcoat. And then when he left, he was a bit stumbly. He'd get a bit intoxicated and I would wait and then I would get him a cab and make sure that, you know, he didn't leave anything behind and Uh, just, you know, be as like little guardian angel girl.
0: Oh, that's sweet.
1: We just got to be friends and friends throughout his whole life and um, right to the end of his life. And he was a very... Kind and very principled man. I know people know all different aspects of William. Yeah, and he was many things, and um, but to me, he was very good to me. He was a good teacher. When my husband died, he was um, so supportive. He was kind to my children. You know, I, yeah. I, I loved. I loved him.
0: Well, I feel a lot. I mean, that's one thing that comes through the writing and, and your life is that like the. The sort of amazing, deep and, you you know, lasting friendships is really uh, it's like enviable. I I mean, you you know, when the way you talk about William and the way you talk about Sam Shepard in the book, just these, you know, this real appreciation of of friends and people you love and and other artists that you respect. It's just it really struck me because I I don't I, I don't. I, I think things have become kind of chaotic and odd, and and I guess people still do it. But when I look at my life, I have a few friends, but there's such because you, the generation and the people that you guys, the, the crew of you are so you know daunting in 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 your output and in who you were in the world. I just love that you're, you're not only are you friends, but you stay together until the end. I mean, it's really kind of amazing and it really is what life is about i mean at least half of it right
1: <laughs> well you find a few people that you really trust who you feel and un- you know understand you i was just lucky the people that that i was close to as a young girl and remain close till you know their passing um we had all of us had work-centric relationships as well as sometimes romantic relationships right Maplethorpe was my boyfriend And um, but when we, you know, had to, um, you know, transition our relationship, we had so much to salvage our, you know, our mutual respect for each other, uh, the work that we did with each other, how we trusted each other's opinion, how comforted we felt by each other. And so there was no reason to you know, tear our friendship apart. We, we hadn't, we, 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 uh, we had to work very hard, but we saved it. And the same with Sam and I, Sam was my boyfriend when I was young. Yeah. and uh, he It was um, that was quite an exciting period, but we also worked together, but we had a great trust and great communication and the friendship that we had and that aspects of that working relationship and that trust we're way more important than, you know, a romantic relationship. Uh, if that's not what you're destined to have, there's often a even a greater jewel,
0: you yeah. know,
1: there. If you recognize it and work to um, to keep it alive, and we we did.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful, and it, it's so it it, it sort of early on the only way i could picture you two at that time was by actually you know reading or seeing a production of cowboy mouth and i was like wow that 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 seemed exhausting
1: <laughs> <laughs> we that it, writing that with sam was the easiest thing i mean it was this uh, sam and i decided mutually that we would part yeah he did the family and it was the right thing to do but we were you know we were um we were sad. And, but one night he just said we were in the Chelsea hotel and he said, let's write a play. Yeah. Let's not sit and weep. <laughs> let's write a play. And I, I said, I don't know how to write a play. It was like, you yeah. know, doing zoom. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. And um, so he we said, well, I'll set up a scenario and uh, you be your character and I'll be my character. Yeah. So he set up a scenario and then he started writing, and when it was my time to talk, he would just hand me the typewriter. We yeah. were sitting on a bed, and he would slide over the typewriter, and then I would write my part. Yeah, and then I would slide it back, and we wrote a play. And uh, and um, yeah, it was just it had a naturalness to it. But both of us being you know lovers of language, you know, yeah. a lot of language in it too.
0: It's just so like, you know, these reflections in this book, you know, particularly like I don't I don't know all the books specifically, but, you know, I, I've kind of immersed myself in the music. You know, I just, yesterday I listened to um, the the last album you did, which was great. And, I you know, I was I listened to the first four and kind of in the middle and picking up pieces here and there and then looking at the gaps. And I'm like, what was going on there? I I just do a lot of thinking before I talked to you. Yeah, someone. no
1: kidding. You you like stop me in my tracks a couple of times. I did
0: in a bad way?
1: No, in a good way. I was like, you know, especially when you were talking about William and, and where the, the different uh, layers and yeah. levels you were going. I was just like again. I just went with you, and then you asked me a question about what you said, and I was like, "Huh?" I just like I was off with you, man. I didn't. I wasn't analyzing what you were saying.
0: <laughs> I, well, that's that's I that's see. Good. I can do that with jazz, man, and I can do it with jazz.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's what it's all about. Improvisation. It's the miracle of improvisation.
0: I can lock into that stuff, you know. But like, I think there's some part of me that. Like, I, I guess it's not it's not about uh, about craving answers, but it is sort of about about making sense. You know what I mean? And like, you know, and, and I'm looking to him to make sense. You know, control needs control to survive. You know, like I'm like, what does that mean? You know, so but that's me. man. He was a
1: lover of Rambo, too. And it's like the whole idea was to explode the senses. You know, it was I mean, think about it with doing cut ups and all of the things he was doing. Yeah. He was always looking for new things. William was looking for like uh, a new language, a new alphabet, you know, some new aspect of the psyche. But he wasn't really um, looking to make sense. A part of him did crave to write the straight detective story, but when he was writing, he was looking for things. He was looking, he was looking for something that no one had said before, no one had seen before, because that to William was what an artist did
0: right that makes sense so like yeah Rambo's another one like uh, you know the the championing of rambo that you do and like jim carroll the, like there are people that do it the beats do it like I, that brought me to rambo and again like i was like do i just take this stuff at face value and you 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 do because the images are mind-blowing that's what you're looking for right
1: i've never been an analytical person yeah but things do speak to us I mean, I was like 11 years old when I saw Cubism yeah. for the first time, right. art for the first time. Cubism spoke to me at 11 years old. Jackson Pollock spoke to me at 11 years old. I can't say why. I mean, yeah. one could say, well, it's the time of rock and roll. Maybe it was the you know that 50s energy. Um, but I've never really been able to, or even sought to analyze why things have spoken to me. Why Rimbaud spoke to me. I didn't even understand his poems when I was like 15. But they, they, their beauty just captivated me. I didn't care about what they meant. Yeah. Now it, it seems it's not so difficult to comprehend what he's laying out. But back then it was like, uh, you know, reading Wittgenstein. Yeah. The world is the- <laughs> like... The world is everything that is the case. You know what does that mean? Well, I don't know, but I'm I'm there. You know, I'm there with you, man. I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm right with you.
0: Yeah, I, I once uh, I wrote something down once that said, you know, I I don't know what it means, but when I'm reading it, it feels like I'm thinking it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Who said that? <laughs> Me. Oh well, see, there you go again. Yeah, that that is a cool statement, and I know exactly what you're talking about. I like that. It's, yeah,
0: it's just like it's like feeding it, you know, and then, you know, something'll, you know something will something reconfigure something in your brain, whether you understand it or not.
1: Well, and, and sometimes why do we understand music? Yeah. You know, you listen to, you know, Hendrix or Beethoven or something and, you know, you don't need to break it down if it like speaks to you or makes you weep or just makes you feel, you know, uh, you know, like you could conquer the universe. There's you know, what's to analyze it's, it's, yeah. It's,
0: uh, uh, no. Yeah. You got to let it happen. Yeah. There's no, I, I'm, I'm no, I'm not great at analyzing things, but when I feel, I just always assume that I don't like understand certain things, but you know, as you get older, th- those things become fewer and less important. That's for fucking sure that, you know,
1: Well, there's another way to look at that how great it is that there's still stuff out there. We don't understand. Oh yeah. It's just more exciting, more, more adventure. If we understood everything, you know, then it would, you know, might, might get, get a little boring, but I, I, I love when uh, things beguile me. I I, I can look at like, one of the things I love to do is look at like geometry books or uh, higher math books that have, That have all kinds of diagrams in them Mm. i don't know what it is but it's so beautiful and the language of mathematics is so beautiful i've never been able to figure it out but i'm endlessly entertained by it
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah, i am no i am no good at math either good yeah what is it what's going on out there
1: just people it's a thing they're doing now people Put their uh, car radios up to as loud as possible, and open the windows and sing.
0: Oh, well, you know, people are kind of crawling out of their skin. They need to. They need some <laughs> it's relief.
1: Like a thing. It's. I know it's becoming a thing because I sometimes see the same cars circling. Oh, you know, doing and it. I think they're you know hoping they'll be discovered.
0: Oh, but that, uh, oh, that'll oh, really
1: by me. just yeah. being a pain in the ass. <laughs> but uh, you know. Happy that they're having a good time.
0: What about Ginsburg? When did you meet Ginsburg?
1: I met Alan again right near the Chelsea Hotel. um, And I had written about this in Just Kids. I met Alan. I knew who Alan Ginsburg was, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, And I actually think I learned about Alan Ginsburg through Bob Dylan, it seems to me. Right. Um, I had never met him. And then I think probably early 1971 or somewhere in 1970. I was going to the Automat uh, to get a sandwich, and I was really hungry, and Robert and I had hardly any money, and I didn't have enough money. I I just had enough money for a sandwich, so I put the money in, and I went to get my sandwich out, and uh, it wouldn't open because they had upped the price from, like, 55 cents for this cheese and mustard sandwich to 65 cents. Yeah. So I was, like, devastated because I was so hungry. Yeah. And and I hear this voice behind me and I was dressed like I had a long overcoat on and a like a Mayakovsky cap, you know? And yeah. It's kind of cool looking. I mean, I was like 22 or something. And uh, this guy says, can I, can I help? And I, I turned around and it's Allen Ginsberg. And I just, I was like, <laughs> wow. And I just like this. And he put a dime in. I got my, my uh, sandwich and then he went and got me a cup of coffee. And then he sat with me and I was like, speechless. I thought, geez, Allen Ginsberg is like getting me food and coffee. And then he starts talking away to me. And then finally I answer him. Uh, We start, he was talking about Camden and I, I'm from that general area. So I started talking about Walt Whitman and he looked and he goes, are you a girl? (laughs) And I was and I, I've already read this, but you're, since you're asking yeah. me and I said, uh, it's a true story. And I said, yeah, is that a problem? And he went, uh, oh, no, 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 <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I thought you were a very pretty boy. And uh, and I I I, I figured it out. What, uh, yeah. what was happening. so I asked him, I said, well, do I have to give you back the sandwich or, you know, can <laughs> yeah. I keep the coffee? Yeah. And he started laughing. He said, no, it was my mistake. And then just, we just hit it off. We kept talking about Walt Whitman, but he had come to my rescue because he thought I was, right. I was often mistaken for a, cause I didn't wear makeup or anything like that. I just had an androgynous look, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. So it was, uh, that's how Alan and I met. And, um, and we, it's funny cause I met William cause I was trying to pick him up yeah. and, uh, and, <laughs> Which was equally fruitless (laughs) because when when William realized I was trying to pick him up, he said, my dear, I'm a homosexual. (laughs) I don't care. That's okay. But but, uh, both of these men really were such, for me, great teachers and great friends. I mean, really, again, when, when my, My husband died in 94, and I had two small children, had to come back to New York. Um, I was really at the lowest point in my life. It was Alan who came. Alan came right to my rescue, uh, drew me back into working again, actually talked to Bob Dylan to ask Bob to maybe take me on a tour, help me get work. So these men, you know, I met these men both in 1970 in humorous circumstances, but they were lifelong friends.
0: So when when you started to do, like, it seemed like you landed on poetry. Like, you it seemed like you were doing a lot of stuff, and you continued to do a lot of stuff, but poetry seemed to be the thing. Was that a decision you made at some point? Like, this is it?
1: You know, I, w- I wanted to be an artist. That's what I wanted. Period. To, and to me, an artist was the whole
0: spectrum. Right. right.
1: And, uh, you know, I dreamed of being a painter, and I always wrote, and i always i wrote poetry since i was about 14 yeah and um, but when i first came to new york working at a, a bookstore robert and i lived in a little apartment and i did little drawings but it was really uh the lion's share of my energy went into poetry and um that's really how i wound up uh performing or um and and recording later it's all the poetry was the genesis like even horses the first lines of horses right. is from uh, you know gloria is from a poem i wrote in 1970 right and uh, and redondo beach came from a poem uh, a lot of the and the idea of imp- imp- improvising um uh, came from the way i wrote and performed poems so um I guess I've always been, you know, poetry centric when it comes to my work. Even now, when I write a lot less poetry, um, I still feel it invading my books, like in in Year of the Monkey and any of these books that I write. Yeah, I'll, I'll read something and I'll think, you know, that's three quarters poem. But uh,
0: oh, definitely, you know. yeah. There's a, like I ended up like last night. I don't know. I was listening to like Tangerine Dream. You know, reading the—that's <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> reading the the rest of your book, and like you know, I'd read like over half of it already, but I've got Tangerine Dream on. I'm reading your book, and all of a sudden, I'm like underlining shit. <laughs> I'm like, this is poetry. Yeah, there's definitely like I definitely see parts where you know, if you just spaced it differently, they just it'd be poetry.
1: A lot of the poetry I wrote when I was younger was. um Uh, love centric or relationship centric or you know and uh it's just as i i got older i've written i don't write so much of that anymore so i'm i find myself uh gravitating almost completely to prose
0: well yeah i mean i I, I was thinking about that like you know what you just said about you know the you wanted to be an artist, and an artist is all of it. And I and I think it seems to me like even in that this being your first Zoom, and I I'm I'm very excited to be part of a Patty Smith first.
1: Um, it
0: is,
1: <laughs> and it's not so bad. I was, I mean, I have to I have to say I was a little worried about it. I thought, well, it, I don't know. I, I I just didn't know what to expect. but yeah. it's it's all yeah, right. It's, it, it's fun so far. It works.
0: Yeah. But like, yeah, Yeah. when you talk about being a full artist and that, you know, that you did, you had to do all these things, whatever it was, that there is this general sense of the artist and art. I was talking to my buddy, Sam Lipsight last night. He's a writer, a genius. I love him. And, you know, it it struck me that, you know, even, you know, the that you don't you don't zoom, you don't have the headphones and you live the, the life of an artist. But you also it seems to me in reading the books that you look to art to resolve all the fundamental questions of of existence you look to art for relief you look to art to make sense of the world you look to it when you're just hanging out having coffee that there's is almost a religiosity to to what it can do for somebody if they surrender to it wholly and fully and I, it seems that's the life you live
1: well that's thank you that that's really a nice thing to say um but i think it's also i look at when I was very young, I always looked at um, being, well, that one is called to be an artist. Yes. If you have a calling to be a poet, well, it could be anything, a calling to be, it could be a priest or a musician. Comedian. or a doctor. I mean, it's, you know, one has a calling. Yeah. And, but, you know, I felt like it, it was my calling. I've never wanted to do anything else. I don't really, not that adept to do anything else, Um it's been a part of my life, my whole life. And even when I was very ill, anytime I've been very ill or at the, you know, at the brink of despair, it always come, comes to me. It always gives me refuge or it always gives me a voice. It always, um, or, or makes me feel that I have some worth, you know, that, uh, sure. that I have something, t- you know, to, to offer, the canon of, uh, of art or offered to people or offered to the future. And it's just, but, you know, I I think of all of these things are linked together. If one has a calling, where does the calling come from? You know, one can say from God, from nature, you know, from some kind of uh, vast energy pool. And, um, and I believe in those, those things. I mean, how I believe in it shifts as I evolve, but I've always um, connected Um, art for me has not been a godless pursuit. So I I always, um, I have it all within my work. I I have connections with everything within my work, but I've also understood that being an artist, you know, there's, there's certain amount of sacrifice and also there's a certain amount of self- orientation i mean self-centeredness in being uh it's not i'm not talking about being conceited i'm just right. talking about that uh, you're you become a sort of work and and one's own work centric creative of course creative centric which uh can be at the detriment to how much um, uh, time or how much of yourself you give to others so there is You know, it's not like it's the most benevolent of all the vocations, but it's the one I it's the one I got.
0: It's interesting because I feel a calling. I feel like I had a calling and I felt like I had no choice but to be a stand up comic. I mean, that was it. Like there was no there was no other thing to do. So, you know, that's what I did. And I do. Uh, well, there's other things we do. I do this now, and but whatever. But it's the ability to identify the calling, and then actually have it in your brain that you have no other option, uh, is some sort of strange, you know, a, a, you know, commitment that i i can't explain it but maybe it's a it's a god thing it's a spiritual thing but like there's literally when you have it and you honor it you're like there are no other choices and then when shit gets tough you're like well i guess i'm just fucked or else it's going to get me out of this i don't know <laughs> i have no idea
1: i also think that for myself i've been very lucky because lucky or unlucky because It's almost like I have like uh, like uh, um, I I live on the on in a constant fork in the road and I'm always going up this road or that road because one great part of me uh, as a performer uh, is uh, entrenched in collaboration, public life, collaboration with a with with a crew, with technology, with the people, with with uh, with my band it's entirely collaborative and it's, and it's very um, outgoing. And, uh, and then the other part of me requires no one and desires, no one, the writer part of me, it really requires no technology. I mean, I can get a notebook and a pencil. Uh, I can be off by myself. Um, I I don't need uh, anything. I don't need anyone. And it's, and I keep vacillating or going back and forth to these two vocations, which is, again, why this, the first months of this, um, of our lockdown was difficult because I had my bags packed. I was going on a world tour, a whole year of touring. I got myself ready for that. Um, I, I it was my gift to my people because, um, at, at seventy three, it's one can start questioning how long you're going to be doing this and uh, i was ready for that i my whole psyche was ready for that to be outgoing to be more giving to be more open with people and um and then suddenly lockdown in oh. solitude and stationary which i i wasn't mentally or physically prepared for so i was quite restless to say the least but but I've gotten into a groove.
0: I've yeah, I mean I see I see the Instagram stuff. You seem to be kind of like it, at least writing daily, taking yes. pictures. <laughs> I you am like writing daily, the but
1: the first couple months I I didn't write as much as I w- wished. I had to re the first couple of months was really getting a new mindset, reprogramming myself to suddenly sure. being alone to being in one place, not going anywhere, um not doing anything publicly. So it was, um, you know, I, I, I had to retune, but you know, I'm doing my yeah. work. I'm, I'm You a- are.
0: <laughs> yeah. You seem good. I mean, you, you know, you can do these zoom calls with anybody, Patty, like if you get used to this, you you can hang out with people like this.
1: It's really funny. It's just, I just, um, I saw my kids did this once and they asked me to sit in it. Yeah. And I was like, for like, three minutes, this is my first, I mean I did that, but this is the first all by myself doing it with figuring it out and yeah. pressing the pipe thing and everything. Yeah. I I lasted about four minutes and I was like, uh, I'll be right back. I, they're my kids and I love my kids, but it was like all this talking and all these faces that I was like, let me out of here.
0: But, yeah. The, the other thing when you were talking about art and about, you know, like, you know, about writing and about choosing writing, you, you know, that writing becomes the The primary as you get older, is that what you're able to do? I I mean, it's it's certainly in this book and, and just kids as well is, you know, you're able to take your experience with people you love and people you respect. And then, you know, as they pass on, you know, you integrate them into the universe of your own creativity through, you know, how you represent them in these books. You know, they become characters that, you know, none of us knew. Like I didn't know Sandy at all, you know. But like I had when I when I went and looked him up, and I saw the work he did, I saw the records he produced. You know, I hear what you had to say, but you're sort of interpreting of their moving on, of their passing. uh, it, It 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 creates another world for their existence. It's kind of it's a beautiful thing, but it seems like you know that you are doing a lot of reckoning with this loss business, you know
1: well i have my whole life it's just it seems to be something that you know and especially in the past well i've just had a string of losses you know yeah my my pianist robert maplethorpe my brother my husband my parents and just so many friends and sam and sandy in one year was it, it was quite a blow but i know the i think robert Asked me to write just kids. I I would have never written that book ever. I never wanted to r- write nonfiction. I just wanted to write fiction and poetry. Robert asked me to write it the day before he died, and I promised I would. And it took me over ten years to write it. And, um, but what I was trying to do was give people give give people Robert as a human yeah. being, you know, right. with his his idiosyncrasies and you know. His work ethic, the way he, how funny he was, how loving he was, or I think he wanted to be remembered uh, more spectrally. But he also knew he could trust me. Right, you know, Robert and and Sam was alive when I when I wrote M Train. Sam is a car- Sam is in M Train. Yeah, and, uh, he's in the M Train as himself, and he's in M Train as my sort of like guardian angel, cowpoke writer, and he. He 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 loved this. He he saw himself in just kids and he knew that I presented him as as we were. And that's what he said to me. I said, were you mad? Was he were you OK with what I wrote? And he said it was just like it was. Yes. And, um, I like giving people. Uh, I like sharing my people uh with 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 everyone right now i'm writing about my brother very few people knew my brother my brother was an extraordinary uh person he died when he was 42 and uh i just want people to know him and um i i, I don't i i don't know i i don't i don't even know what to say i feel like you <laughs> you put a mirror up to me and i'm thinking oh should i be doing that or what but it it of is course what I
0: do. Of course you should be doing it. It's like I was sort of amazed because, you know, I recently lost somebody that that I loved uh, tragically and quickly and reckoning with loss. uh, You know, I've never had to do it. You know, this is the first time like, you know, my parents are still fucking alive, you know, and, you know, and this woman was, you know, my my girlfriend and she was in my house. You know, and I never had to to deal with that, the the trauma, the tragedy and then the absence, you know, living with the absence. So what do you do with that? So I felt, you know, especially reading, you know, this and and reading, you know, parts of Just Kids that, you know, it seems that you are integrating, you know, that absence into, you know, what life is. I mean, it's obvious it's it's as there's nothing unusual about loss and about death. It's the most common thing in the world, but it's like it's really a lot to deal with, but it's perfectly human.
1: Well, I. I also like, I, I I, a lot of my relationships, a lot of my friendships would be long distance. You know, we wouldn't see each other for a while. So, you know, but I always felt them with me. I always felt Sam with me when I traveled. Yeah. Uh, if I didn't see him for a couple of months, I knew him for half a century. I knew that he was in my corner He and yeah. I was in his. And, you know, it it doesn't feel any different. I do long to see him. As, I mean, right. he was such a beautiful man and he was so protective. And I just his presence, I miss his physical presence um, m- more than I could have imagined. But um, but I also feel, um, you know, I'm sure I'll write something else again and he'll be back again.
0: Yeah, you I keep just,
1: bringing him back, you know, he's because um, he'll always be with me. Yeah, I I don't see why he shouldn't be with me,
0: right? No. Of course, but, yeah. And Lenny and you have been together for a million years now, right?
1: Yes, I met Lenny uh not long after I met Sam. Uh, Lenny and, and Sandy were very good friends as well. We all knew each other. Um,
0: you I knew met- that like Sandy was like Sandy Perlstein, right? Is that Perlman? Very- Perlman. Yeah. Perlman was uh, the manager and producer of Blue Oyster Cult for a lot of records. Yes.
1: And he wrote a lot of their songs. He wrote a lot of their lyrics and the concepts. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of those songs, Astronomy, A Star. uh, I wrote some of the lyrics. I wrote Career of Evil and some of the other ones. But the night I met Sandy um, was my first poetry reading and I was with Sam. And Lenny did a little guitar with me, played some feedback on some poems. And um, and Sandy Perlman came up to me and and told me I should be front in a band and asked me if I wanted to come and audition to sing to be the other singer with uh, Eric on what became Blue Cult
0: at yeah. the
1: time. They were, they were called Stock Forest at the time. Uh-huh. But, um, and I, I just thought that was... I thought it was really funny. I mean, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I told I said, Sam, I said, I said, this guy said the funniest thing to me. And he said, I don't think that's so funny. You could do that. You know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. but that was 19 February 71. And I wasn't even thinking about doing anything like that. I wanted to, you know, I, I think I had my first poetry book and, you know, I was very um, poetry was my, vocation that i was magnifying never even occurred to
0: me down the saint mark's poetry project is that what it was called yeah it's weird the convergence of like you know that scene and the punk rock scenes all sort of like swirling around and then it just blows up the weird thing is about about you is like i'm listening to you you know from from horses and you know, the first three records it's like you know you're a fucking rock star i mean that shit holds up and like you know whatever you were doing and like with the poetry or whatever what there is you know when you sing on those songs or what i saw you perform here in la a couple of years ago at that small club I, it was a, you know remember when johnny depp came up and i think joe perry was there yeah. that was a good show you you were great Thank you were rocked hard but like you're like you know when you when i see you do that or i lose those records i'm like this is you know you're a singular force in rock and roll i mean i mean i'm sure the poetry was great but was there a certain amount of relief when you started to do rock and roll
1: oh absolutely i mean that's that's why it happened because i got bored really quickly you know i mean just reading poems i had so much energy i had really 78 speed natural energy yeah. You know, I was just a wired kid and, uh, I couldn't really be contained easily. Yeah. And, uh, I found that, um, you know, it, it, it happened, it started slow, but when it fi- started happening and I started improvising over three chords, yeah, I could just spew language. And plus I, I liked, you know, the, the phys- physicality of it. And, uh, but, you know, I was still thinking of it as poetry. Yeah. You know, I wasn't thinking, um, you know, of uh, that I was like a rock and roll singer. I, I didn't have any, you know, uh, visions of me singing. I was a performer. I still think of myself as a performer. But when it evolved to rock and roll and we were recording and going on the road, of course, you know, I loved rock and roll. Rock and roll saved my life when I was a kid. Um, You know, being part of the evolution of rock and roll was helped form me. And I wanted to be like the best, you know, if I was going to be even a minor rock and roll star, I was going to be a good one.
0: I don't mean (laughs) even
1: talented. I just mean I would put all of my everything into being like, you know,
0: all in the real deal.
1: Yeah. Because, you know, Who wants to be a mediocre rock star?
0: Nobody. (laughs) (laughs) There's a there's a lot of them around though. (laughs) So when you like, who were? I I mean, it's pretty. You have pretty specific rock heroes, though, don't you? That kind of compelled you. Well, I
1: mean, I was for me. I mean, I loved uh, I loved Jim Morrison and. You know, I love. I mean, I love Bob Dylan, of course. Bob Dylan was a very important um, and mentor yeah. from afar for me. But uh, one of the p- people that I learned so much from yeah. um, was Johnny Winter. Really? Well, because I got a job um, for a while with Steve Paul. Steve Paul wanted to sign me up to his record. Um, he opened up a record company in 1971 called blue sky records and he wanted to give me a record contract yeah uh in 1971 and i but he wanted me to he wanted to form me yeah you know and i said and he offered me a lot of money and i i said uh i ain't doing that i actually talked to william burroughs about that i said this guy offered me like huge amount of money but it's not something i want to do and he said you know you got to keep your name clean you got to never do anything that, you know,
0: isn't right for you. Keep your name clean.
1: Wow. So I but I needed a I wanted a shift. I need wanted a different job. So I didn't take that. But I took a different job from him sort of shadowing Johnny Winner when they went. Um, they had to go to England because Johnny was colorblind. And um, they needed somebody with them to go, th- you know, walk cross the streets, look at the traffic lights and and roam around with him. And Johnny liked me because yeah. Johnny lived in Chelsea hotel for a while and Robert designed some of his clothes. So, so I started going to some of Johnny's concerts. Well, he wasn't like anybody that I would have thought I would have liked. Yeah. I mean, I was, all I was Jimi Hendrix, all Jimi Hendrix all the time, yeah. but I saw J- Johnny live many times. And I have to say, 1970, 71, 72, I never saw anybody like him. Anyone as fierce as him. He, he would leap. The first person I ever saw that leaped into the people, uh-huh. leaped into the people would leap right off the stage. He commanded that whole stage. And it, I, the energy that that guy had and his body language was like nothing I ever saw. He was like a wizard.
0: Yeah, yeah. He
1: wasn't my favorite guy. I mean, it wasn't even like my kind of music, but his physicality, and I learned a lot from him.
0: Yeah, he's a he's a, he's a monster guitar player. I mean, he's like, and always always was. But
1: had, you know, he was almost bewitched. Yeah. It was like he was like bewitched. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot, of course. You know. I modeled myself a little after Bob Dylan and, you know, I, I was, wasn't uh, embarrassed about, you know, um, modeling myself after these guys. Um, no,
0: I mean, Bob, know, I, Bob Dylan modeled himself after Ramblin' Jack Elliott for years. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I, uh, you know, I just got what I, I mean, I was myself, but I got certain things from these people. I got m- certain things I know from from Jimi Hendrix, or I got certain things from Lada Lenya.
0: Yeah, you know. Sure.
1: So I just took the things from masters because I had no training, I had no musical training, I didn't. But I, and I didn't uh, replicate them. I just absorbed what I could learn from them. Of course. And just
0: yeah, because like I can't. Like it becomes seamless. And you know, you you know, you take the magic of the 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 heroes and you you know, integrate them into your sense of self and confidence and then you kind of b- bloom into your own thing you know you don't you know you don't become them but you know it's definitely magic i like the way you characterize johnny that you just saw that he was a vessel <laughs> you know what what it was but it was in there you know
1: and i and also he was fearless i saw jim morrison and jim morrison he was awesome but and he like pushed things as far as he could but he always seemed afraid
0: interesting i thought
1: of him as a performer he seemed because he had you could feel i don't know what his own demons whatever he f- feared yeah i was a young girl I, I mean i'm i saw him in 1968 or something or 67 Um but what i got from him wasn't the same thing i got from johnny right i got you know he had you know i i'm sure he sometimes he might have felt like a god jim morrison but you also felt a self-loathing or something he had a strange um, right he la- he lacks self-love i think and i don't i didn't i can't say that i understood him but his style didn't appeal to me
0: right right you no
1: know, i looked at him and i thought i didn't feel intimidated by his presence
0: right you know? well i think um, it seems like with johnny and even i can see that with you that you know, you're all, you're all in, and you're you're not afraid of the vulnerability of being all in. Like this is it. You know, it's going to be awkward for some of you, but this is this is what it is, right?
1: Well, I just I just think all the thing that I wanted for our band and for myself was just that we were ourselves, right? You know, at, however flawed. I don't know, even that sometimes when I was awkward or sometimes when it seemed like I was like and acted like an asshole. It did it didn't matter. It was all you know, I hate to use the word authentic. It's just uh we didn't have any artif artifice. Right.
0: You no. Know? Yep.
1: And and I if I sensed artifice or because of repetition, um, you know, a lack of complete engagement, then I would like mentally counsel myself about that because i i I didn't want that i just wanted um oh and i just thought of another great performer bob marley what a great performer oh yeah oh my he was an he was an awesome performer he he was another one that had you could feel him it was like shamanistic you could feel him entered
0: right yeah yeah Uh,
1: just beautiful energy yeah it's all about energy
0: sure well, what about some of your contemporaries? What about, well, what do you think of Iggy?
1: Well, he was, he was, Iggy came out before. He was, he's a, he came in the 60s. Oh, did he? Iggy's I a guess
0: performer. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean.
0: I guess, yeah, he's younger. And, and Lou Reed too is older too. You're younger than those guys, but they were around, right? They left their mark on the city.
1: Iggy just started younger. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, you know, he was, a, he was started in the 60s after the MC5. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I never even saw Iggy before until later in li- life you know he wasn't uh he wasn't on my radar
0: uh-huh. you know that's uh, yeah because I, I guess your husband iggy used to hang around their house or something right yeah.
1: well i mean even f- i mean my husband i didn't know about you know i was from south jersey i didn't even hear about the velvet underground there you know it yeah. was like i came to new york and had to learn a lot about the, our present culture right and I didn't know anything about the MC five or, right. or Fred. Or, yeah. You know, when I when I first saw Fred, I just saw him as a as a guy. Yeah. You know, across a crowded room and that was that, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And how are your kids? Good?
1: My kids are they're they're great. My my daughter does um works tirelessly uh, for um you know for climate change awareness she is a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and she's a musician and uh she writes and my son is a great guitar player and has a family uh, they're they're awesome my kids are they're just they 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 magnify their the best of their father and i see myself somewhat in them and you know i love my kids it's great sometimes we, we all play on stage together and uh I love my kids because they're always my kids. Yeah, I mean, my son has come up. We once we were playing. I don't. I think we were in Spain or something. There was like thirty thousand people at a festival, and my son was playing um, lead guitar that night. And uh, we were on some song I can't remember. I'm singing the chorus, and then there was a breakdown, and my son is going, "Mom, mom, mom," and I'm going like what is it? And he, he was saying, uh, uh, I'm having a little rough time. He was having a little rough time physically. He said, I don't know what kind of solo I'll be doing, but I'll just do the best I can. And I said, yeah, yeah, just do the best you can, Jack. But we're like talking. <laughs> he's always my son, Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm always his mom, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and of course he played great, but he's, uh, you know, I remember also, We were uh, touring with Bob Dylan and some reporter, you know, asked him, what's it like having your mom as your mom? And he goes, she's my mom, you know, (laughs) she makes dinner and she's, you know, (laughs) washes the clothes. And that was the best answer of all. I don't want to be anything else but but mom to my kids. Well,
0: well, it seems like you had a lot of time there where you could really focus for a while, right?
1: Well, they were quite young when they lost their father, but uh, six and 12, but. But um, when their father was alive, we were always with each other every day because Fred and I both left public life and we lived very simply and we were always together you know we uh, so we have a lot to remember yeah you know we have all of that time together. good to foundation
0: remember.
1: but also they they just my daughter plays piano and she sounds like Fred Wow and my son sometimes he's playing guitar and just the Sometimes the faces he makes or or the tones that he draws, which are very unique, yeah. were very unique to Fred. And I've stood on stage and actually almost burst into tears hearing my son play. It's so much would sound just like his father. Wow. And he wouldn't even be conscious of it.
0: Wow. It, I I bet you some of that stuff is just in there. It's just carried on. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. I it's, it's It's been proven to me. Yeah. That... Uh, you know, we, you know, there's so many ways that we, um, um, we become who we are, you know, from the people that nurture us and from, you know, experience and what we study and all of the, 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 uh, influences that we have, but also, um, blood is blood can be a gift too.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I definitely believe that's true. And uh, another Jersey guy, Bruce, do you, are you friends with Bruce?
1: Well, I mean, I know him. I mean, I'm, we don't have, we're not like uh, we don't hang out or anything. I mean, we're happy to see each other, but um, yeah, I mean, I'm also not, I'm, I'm not really a musician. I don't really have a musician's lifestyle or hang out with, you know, musicians. I mean, even when Lenny and I are together, we're like, you Know we're like two bums that, yeah. you know, writer bums
0: that also, right. you know, yeah. yeah, old friends hanging out yeah. and the Dil- and the Dylan thing. Um, has he is he present in your life, Bob? Yeah,
1: <laughs> believe me, if Bob was present in my life, that no one would hear about because the, the, he is the most private man <laughs> you can imagine. But no, Bob is not in my life except in my uh the way that he is. He's been in my life since I was 15 years old. And uh, I, I've had time when I've spent gotten to talk to him a lot or sit and listen to him play. And, and then years not, you know, it's, I don't, we don't, I don't have any established relationship with him. He knows I'm in his corner. So,
0: right. How did the, um, like, I'm sure you've told this story, but I don't know. I just watched it. How did the, um, the, the the Nobel Prize gig come up.
1: The Nobel Prize uh, job came because they asked me to. It was the Nobel people. Uh, I I play a lot in Sweden and uh, actually, sort of you know, well liked in Sweden. Yeah. So uh, the Nobel people asked if I would sing uh, for whoever won the literary lore you know who who won for the nobel pr- uh, prize for literature and that year um there was some talk it might be morikami yeah and so i thought i would sing this song wing because of the wind-up bird chronicle well it wasn't it turned out to be bob dylan and then i i thought oh my gosh i singing i'm going to be singing for bob I i can't you, sing one of my songs i should sing one of his yeah so i chose um hard rain hard gonna fall because i felt even though it was an early song it encompasses everything his poetry his uh you know his his humanity his sense of the environment his sense of you know all of the things that he believed you know that, that we all believe in are in that song and i i thought it was the perfect uh you know yes yeah, great way to introduce him and of course <laughs> I had this terrible episode of strange white out nerves but um
0: it's but uh, <laughs> it is one of the greatest moments of live performing I've ever seen in my life it, it, it it's it is so personal it's so odd the way it, it kind of I know it must have been just a horrible for you but as oh, it was I thought I would die. Yeah. And I, I I can, I
1: really, I don't have any, when it comes to performing, I don't mind screwing up anything. And I screw up a lot, but it's my own screw up. Yeah. But to screw up another person's work, especially Bob Dylan, who is, has meant so much to me throughout right. my whole life. It was it was a, it was terrible.
0: But but the self correction of it was beautiful because it was ultimately an act of respect. And you know, but it, it just that moment where you make the decision to be like, wait a minute. Like every time I watch it, I'm like, oh my god. As a performer, it, like I, it almost makes me cry because it's like because it's so <laughs> honest though. It's so honest. And you know, I don't know. I thought it was great, and everybody. It seemed like everybody kind of woke up and realized that they were seeing a human. It was kind of an amazing moment.
1: Well, it all, uh, it seemed universally to strike people that way. And I'm grateful for that because at the moment with the orchestra behind me, (laughs) giant and these cameras, because they were global cameras going all over the world, you know, massive cameras and looking down and the king and queen of, of Sweden and, and all of the noble lords and, and all of this expectation. And then suddenly to just freeze, I just froze. I mean, a song that I knew backwards and forwards just suddenly escaped me. And um, I didn't know what to do. I've never, I've had these things happen to me on stage where I can laugh and make a joke and say, well, like we'll do this and then talk to the people I've had paranoid moments where I had to actually talk myself down with the people and say, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I feel really self-conscious and people are always with you. And I know that people, most of the time people are with you. If, if they come, they're going to be with you. Right. It was just, um, (laughs) it was so humiliating and so frightening, but it, it turned out that, you know, it made people, People seem to identify it because everybody has these moments where they're their worst wor- moments of their life. <laughs> everybody <laughs> has these moments. And I guess it was just, uh, <sighs> yeah, I guess I had to be the poster poster girl for the worst <laughs> moment of your life. But um, I, um, I don't know like that if it, I, it, I feel about it now, like I feel about everything. If it's, if it's served anybody, then it's okay yeah you know even not it, a bob that says you got to serve someone yeah yeah you know? yeah so, okay it's it seemed to serve people did he say anything about it not to me directly but uh i i know from the family that uh everyone seemed very happy they seemed <laughs> content with me. good with 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 everything
0: um well it's great talking to you i wanted to t- You know, I I was going to talk more about some of this like this line, the the evidence of an awareness of the relative value of insignificant things. Like it seems that, you know, that like, and I see some of your photographs, too. And I have a lot of little things that that really become personal magic objects, sort of like, you know, you know, triggers of 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 emotion and nostalgia and and place and time. I, I love that appreciation of that. And I like the way you look at them.
1: Oh, thank you, Mark. That's so nice. Well, I guess it's, (laughs) we've we've done mosey on, but I had, this was really fun. Um, It was great. I wish I was sometimes a little more articulate, but I'm just not my, you know, i become very mentally abstract in these months, but really fun to talk to. No, I
0: thought it was great. And I love talking to you. And you know, who was always telling me that he wanted us to talk, you know, Barry Skills. You're-
1: oh, Barry. He's my, he's one of my favorite people. He is really, um, I've been blessed to have him as a, as a, a crew member and a friend. And I don't know if you know this, but you know, he has my husband's motorcycle.
0: Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yes.
1: My husband had a, 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 a Harley, uh Sportster and uh, um, Barry um, and I, just had it you know yeah no you know no none of us <laughs> ride a motorcycle and it was you know you can't leave a motorcycle for years not right doing anything you know and barry's dream i found out was to have a, a harley sports sports drink. yeah and, <laughs> and he has really he has really taken he has loved that barry also i have to say reminds me of my late brother todd uh-huh. so I always say he gets the toddy award. Oh, okay. And Barry, uh, my brother, was the head of our crew uh, when um, when we performed in the seventies, and uh, and uh, Barry became the head of our crew when I went returned to performing in the nineties, and um, he has really shepherded that that uh, that motorcycle. He goes everywhere in it. He named it Sonic after Fred. Oh, that's great. I think it's actually. had it painted on it oh
0: wow that's great i didn't know that like i know him from doing conan a a, as a comic and he he'll 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 work on my guitars occasionally and we'll talk about this and that but he's a great guy but he always used to say like look i'm gonna talk to patty you guys gotta talk no
1: he keeps he's he's been the one he keeps saying you have to do this (laughs) and you have to do this and uh he and, and talk about being in one's corner he is in your corner that's for sure well,
0: that's sweet well i just want to acknowledge that uh that uh he's a great guy and that you know he was always championing this and i'm glad it happened
1: me too well we'll have to do it again sometime because there's a million things we could talk oh, about yeah. i
0: can see hopefully in person you know? you know like maybe we'll get back to some sense of normal i'll come to new york with some microphones and we'll do it
1: <laughs> although i i forgot that we i mean i'm you know, because I'm the any interviews I've done in the past six or seven months have been on the telephone. Yeah. I haven't met anybody, so actually, I almost forgot that we're not you know
0: just talking. It's, it's yeah, yeah, no, yeah. it's great. I'm I'm so happy that you we we got you involved in the Zoom thing, and it, and it, and it's working out. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, take care of yourself. <laughs> I've been, zoomed. I've been it's
1: officially zoomed. <laughs> You're zoomed.
0: You've been zoomed, Patty Smith.
1: Well, thanks, Mark. Talk to you again soon.
0: Oh, I love her so much. Fatty Smith, the book is Year of the Monkey and everything else she's ever done. Go listen to those first three or four records again, man. Damn. Right out of the gate. Just fucking mind-blowing. Dean Del Rey's got ACDC on Let There Be Talk today. And now I'll play some guitar. Now I'll do it. The Fond uh, Cat Angels. <laughs>